This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus of Nazareth had been buried three days earlier. At great personal risk to himself, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, went to Pontius Pilate and asked for his body. And he took that mangled, broken body down from the cross, and before the sun set to begin the Sabbath day, he laid it in his own tomb. Three women had been there, standing at a distance, watching Jesus suffer and die on the cross. And they watched Joseph and saw where he laid the body. And on the first Day of the week, they go to the tomb. After the Sabbath had finished on Saturday at 6 o'clock, the Sabbath was over, and they went to the market and they bought some spices, lots and lots of spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now, here's how Jewish burials worked. They had tombs that were carved from the rock. They didn't bury them in the dirt underground They buried them in a tomb that probably measured two meters by two meters by two meters, six feet by six feet by six feet. It was carved out of limestone, and there were often a shaft in which the body was lowered standing vertically, or they would lay the corpse on a shelf or a ledge carved out of the rock. And they would anoint the body, not for embalming, but to cover the smell of decomposition because that tomb would be used again and again as the family would bury different members. At the end of a year or two, there would be a second burial. The bones would be collected and placed into what was called an ossuary box and put on a ledge where you could see the bones of generations of your family. So on the first day of the week, as the sun is just creeping over the horizon, very, very early at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, these three women head outside the city to the tomb in the garden. It's just after sunrise, and they're on their way to the tomb, filled with grief, no doubt, and confusion that this master they had loved and they had followed is now dead. He's dead. This is one week after Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus on this donkey into Jerusalem as people are waving their palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so fast, it's impossible to believe this Jesus has been arrested, 
and executed. And now all that they have left is the corpse of their master. And they're obviously in great confusion of spirits because they go to the tomb without even thinking how they're going to move the stone aside. And these Jewish tombs were covered with stones to protect the bodies from wild animals and grave robbers. And these stones would have been, often they were square, but for the wealthy people like Joseph, they would have been circular and they would have been rolled down a slot to cover the entrance to the tomb. One man possibly could have rolled a stone into position, but it would take several strong men to move the stone out of the way. And it's just the women. The male disciples, Peter and James and John and the others, they are not headed to the tomb. They have shamefully failed Jesus. They boasted that they would go to the very end with him and even die before they allowed him to be executed, and they fell to pieces when Jesus was arrested. They have failed, and Jesus seemingly has failed them, and they are not with these devoted women going to the tomb. So these three women, they're on their way to the tomb wondering how on earth this problem of this stone is going to be dealt with because it is a large stone and it is beyond their feeble power to move the stone out of the way of the grave. And to their surprise and confusion, when they arrive at the tomb, light is beginning to fill the sky. To their confusion, the stone has been rolled out of the way and they see the open hole of the tomb standing in front of them. What on earth is going on? And as they stoop to enter the tomb, they are shocked to see that there is someone waiting there for them. A young man clothed in white is waiting for these three women. And this clearly is no ordinary human being. The other gospel writers make it clear This is an angel. This is the one who rolled the stone aside, and now he's sitting on this very large stone, his legs dangling down, his arms crossed, waiting for these three women to show up and give them the shock of their life. And they are completely stunned to see this young man sitting there, looking at them, and no doubt, smiling. They are completely gobsmacked. They are dumbfounded and filled with fear and alarm because the last thing you want to encounter in the graveyard is some strange spirit. Corpses are bad enough, but my goodness, an angel sitting there. And they are alarmed. They are freaked out and they grip each other in terror. And the young man says, as angels always say in the Bible, don't be alarmed. Fear not. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, this person from this most ordinary town in Galilee, whom you yourself saw nailed to the cross and breathe his last This is the one you are looking for. I have good news. Jesus is absent. 
He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Look, he says, see the place where he lay. And these women with their mouths hanging over and their eyes bulging out of their sockets peer into this tomb, which is no larger than a large walk-in closet, and they look around, and the benches are empty. The corpse wrapped in linen that they were expecting to see is not there. Jesus, this angel tells them, has risen. He's not talking about some sort of spiritual resurrection where Jesus becomes some exalted spirit or ghost and he's living on in our hearts. He's talking about Jesus being physically raised from the dead. His body is not here. He is risen, he says. But he gives these three women no time to savor this moment or really even to take in this incredible news. They have got a job to do. Go, he tells them. I doubt they spent more than 60 seconds at the tomb. Go, you've got a mission. There is no time to be wasted, to be sitting here gawping at what has happened. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. The very place where the disciples began their mission is where Jesus is appointing a rendezvous to meet them. And there, you disciples will see him just as Jesus told you. This is the message that these three women are sent to deliver to the disciples. And then we have this remarkable verse that the women were trembling and bewildered. They could look at their hands and see them shaking. And they are bewildered, they are confused, they're stunned, they are knocked half out of their wits, And they don't just leave the tomb, they flee the tomb. Something extremely freaky has happened. And they run from the tomb as from something dangerous. And they say nothing to anyone because they are afraid. Now, Mark clearly means here, they said nothing along the way to anyone. They didn't burst from the tomb and go announcing in the streets, Jesus of Nazareth is risen. They went to the disciples clearly and told them, because we have this story, but they were in no position to be bursting with news to everyone. And you can imagine them sitting on the marshruka into Jerusalem. I'm adding some details here. Staring at each other, looking at the other passengers, trying to figure out what on earth just happened. And the strange thing is that this seems to be how the gospel of Mark ends. Now, if you have a King James or an older version, you'll see there's more verses. What about those? That's the longer ending of Mark. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's in later ones. The early church fathers did not know about these verses. Those who did believed that they were spurious. They'd been added later by someone who felt this story needs some finishing off. We cannot end this story with these women fleeing from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. We need something more. But this, almost all scholars agree, is how the gospel ends, or at least this is all we have with us. Perhaps some suggest that Mark died before finishing or somehow rats ate the end of the manuscript, or something. But in the providence of God, this is how this gospel ends. In Mark's typical 
brutally abrupt style. We don't even get a resurrection appearance. We don't even see Jesus at the end. Just this announcement from the angel and this forecasting of a rendezvous in Galilee. This is how the gospel ends. Now, the one thing we have to say about this story is that this is public news. This is not about some private religious vision, some personal spiritual experience. This is something that has happened in history and that has public implications, just as public as the crucifixion of Jesus. And we confess with Paul that if Christ has not risen from the dead, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus' body is still in the tomb, we are of all people most to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for us wasting our lives on this gospel that is no gospel at all, a gospel where death has the last word and the grave has the victory. But we believe this is what really happens in history. We are not following cleverly devised myths or some kind of fable invented by the early church. In fact, it's fascinating that the three, the witnesses that are given in all four of the Gospels are women. And this was actually a bit awkward for the early church because in the ancient world, women, their voice was not respected. In Judaism, in fact, women were not allowed to be witnesses in court. You could stab someone to death in front of 20 women and you would not be convicted because their word could not be trusted. In fact, later uh, pagans mocked the Christians for believing the word of hysterical women. So, if you were going to invent a religion, if you were going to construct something from scratch that would convince many, many people, the very last witnesses you would choose are three women. You would choose someone solid and reliable. In fact, there's someone at hand. What about Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, a good man, someone who actually has access to Pontius Pilate at a moment's notice? Wouldn't it be great if Joseph of Arimathea was the one who witnessed the resurrection, perhaps with a professor of engineering and a retired judge and some witnesses that we could all thoroughly rely on? But instead, we have these three women as witnesses. And the only reason they would be in the Gospels is because, in fact, they saw something. They experienced something. And we're not making this up, these Gospel writers are saying. We're only forced to put these women in because the very earliest traditions have three women at the tomb witnessing something. And there's another line of evidence in here as well that I must mention. It's the failure of the disciples. And again and again in Mark, we have these bumbling, confused, arrogant, and in the end, cowardly disciples. And surely, if these 11 men were trying to devise a religion where they could have power and control over other people, they would never, ever present themselves in this way. The disciples are kind of embarrassing and awkward figures. Surely proof that they did not 
make this up because that's not what people do. So here we have this strange story, and we have these women who are completely gobsmacked and overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed, first of all, with fear, naked fear as this thing happens to them. They're alarmed, they're trembling, they're bewildered, and they're afraid in this story. Not primarily because of the angel. Well, that's enough to give anyone the heebie-jeebies. It's because of the announcement that the angel gives them. They came expecting to see a corpse, and they're told that Jesus is risen. And this fills them with fear. It makes them really, really scared to find out that Jesus has risen from the dead. And all throughout Mark's gospel, he has shown us people who are astonished at the power of Jesus. It's the reaction we have over and over again. When, people, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, people are bewildered and amazed. And when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples react with terror. They've just been saved from death, and now they've encountered something even scarier, someone who can command creation with a word. Again and again in Mark, people are astonished, bewildered, and filled with fear. Now, why on earth do these women react this way? They've come to encounter death. There's a stone they're expecting in front of the grave, and it's very large, too large for them to move. And isn't that what we all encounter with the grave? Who is going to roll the stone away? We're too weak to open up the grave and release people from it. And this is what makes death so frightening. Aristotle said, the dreadful thing about death is that death is the end. Death is the end of everything good, of everything beautiful, of everything true, of every friendship and every relationship that you've had. Death ends everything. That is the terror of death because it is inevitable. However happy our lives might be, however filled with joy and prosperity, all of us, every person in this room is marching inexorably towards the grave. Some of us will be sooner, some of us will be later, but we were all going to end up in the clutches of death, and that is a frightening thought. But now, these women have encountered something stronger than death. See, death, terrible as it is, death can be managed somewhat. It can be predicted. We have comforting rituals for death, like anointing someone's body. Jesus, in fact, I think the Gospel of John tells us, had already been anointed with spices by Joseph and Nicodemus. But these women come again with spices because when we grieve, we need something to do, something to make us feel a little less out of control in the face of death. And so we have rituals for death, and we have liturgies for death. But there's no liturgy for resurrection. There's no form I can read off and be prepared for someone rising from the dead. That 
is scary. Death can be managed. Resurrection cannot be managed. Death has a terrifying power, but now these women have encountered a power far more terrifying and far less predictable. Because when Jesus died, he went into the grave and he conquered the grave. He didn't just survive death. He didn't stagger from the tomb, half resuscitated. He conquered death and he triumphed over it. Just yesterday, I was watching a little video online of a poisonous newt. This little lizard, it was colored bright orange, and its skin is covered in some kind of toxic poison. And as it was walking along, it encountered a bullfrog, and the bullfrog opened its mouth and ate this brightly colored orange newt. Never eat anything that is colored bright orange in the wild. It's very dangerous. And this bullfrog gulps it down, and you see him there. He's blinking, and then he starts crawling up the bank, and he collapses by the ferns, and his eyes close, and then you wait, and you watch it, and then something orange comes out of his mouth, and this little newt continues on its way, completely unaffected by this bullfrog. Now, of course, there are limitations to comparing Jesus Christ to a poisonous orange newt. But Jesus, too, has gone into the grave. And when death swallowed Jesus, it ingested something it could not digest. Jesus was toxic for the grave. He conquered the grave, and he emerged not only unaffected, but triumphant and exalted over death. Death could not Hold Jesus. And that is frightening. If it's frightening for Jesus' friends and beloved disciples, how much more frightening is the resurrection for the forces of evil? Easter Sunday is not celebrated in hell. Easter Sunday is the worst day of hell's calendar. They thought Friday was good because they had received Jesus into their clutches and at last they had the Son of God to do with as they would. But Jesus was not a good guest in the regions of death. And he conquered death, he destroyed death, he defeated death, and he emerged from the grave with the keys of death and hell in his hands. And if Jesus can conquer death, He is unstoppable. Jesus has supreme power. When he calmed the storm, we saw his power over uncreation, but now we see his power over, we saw his power over creation, now we see it over uncreation. The forces of death and chaos cannot resist Jesus. He is supreme, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And to encounter this supreme power Conquer over death is a terrifying experience. If you read the book of Revelation, there is John in the spirit on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, and he encounters the risen and exalted Jesus. And this person has a face shining like the sun in full strength. He has a voice like the thunder of many waters. 
And John falls at his feet as though dead. That's what it's like to encounter the risen Christ, terrifying in the extreme. And with these women, we too should be overwhelmed with fear at the resurrection of our Lord from the grave. Take off your shoes, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. Overwhelmed with fear. Thank God that is not all of the message today, because in this passage, we disciples are also overwhelmed with grace. Overwhelmed with fear, but also with grace. What are the words of this young man, this angelic figure? Do not be alarmed. This power might be terrifying, but it is friendly. It's not a power to destroy you, but to bring you life. And the angel announces Jesus the Nazarene as the one who was crucified. In the moment of Jesus' glory, at the announcement of his resurrection, the label identifying him is, he was crucified. The Jesus who hung on the cross and suffered and bled for your sins is not a different Jesus than the one who rose from the grave in terrifying power. It's one and the same person, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And that is a tremendously consoling fact. Jesus did not die on the cross as a private person. It was not for his own sins that he hung there. And Jesus did not rise from the dead as a private person either. That's why Easter Sunday is good news, because we're not celebrating just one isolated incident, but the beginning of a new humanity. Jesus died as our substitute, but he rose as our representative. Jesus died as our substitute. He died so that you would not die. But as our representative, he rose. He rose so that you would rise. He rose as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Where one person has conquered death, the rest will surely follow. That is what Jesus has done in his resurrection. And the grace continues because this young man has a message for these women to take to the disciples from their risen master. They are not forgotten. Jesus wants them. He says, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter. Ah, there's a lot of grace in that statement. Tell his disciples and Peter. And these 11 men had behaved very, very shabbily. They had boasted of how awesome they were going to be when things really came to a head, and they let Jesus down completely. They fled in terror. They abandoned him at his moment of greatest need. And Peter, Peter, the rock, denied even knowing Jesus. And you can imagine the confusion of feelings of these 11 men when they heard that Jesus had succumbed and died and been buried. Grief, surely, but also profound shame. They do not look good in this story. And you can imagine them 
wrestling with what happens now. What is my purpose? What kind of a person am I even? And Jesus, in his moment of glory and exaltation, has not forgotten his disciples. He hasn't decided, you know what, I'm going to start over with 12 new guys. These guys let me down. It's time to start over with a fresh batch that surely will serve me better than these losers. But they are not left behind. They're not neglected. Jesus has a word for them. Tell the disciples and Peter. I love that. The disciples and Peter. Because if the ten were meeting together, I'm sure Peter was alone somewhere, overcome with grief and remorse at what he had done, filled with that image of Christ looking at him, outside there by the fire, denying his master. And Jesus says, to be sure, all of them, the disciples and Peter. And you can imagine these women rushing in and telling the disciples and them calling Peter. And I'm asking, are you sure he said me? Did he just say the disciples? Exactly what did the angel say? No, no, he said the disciples and Peter. You, specifically, Peter. Easter is not just for heroes. It's not for heroes at all because there are no heroes in this story except for Jesus. Easter is precisely for failures, for cowards, for people who have let Jesus down. Those are exactly the people he wants to meet with and give grace to. It's striking we don't have the account of Peter's restoration here. I think it's in the Gospel of John. But Peter had denied Jesus by this charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard. And Jesus, or Peter is restored by Jesus at a charcoal fire on the beach in Galilee. He is forgiven, he is restored, he's commissioned, and he's going to be empowered as are all the disciples. It's as though all that failure in the past is completely irrelevant now that Jesus has risen from the dead. Spiritual failure is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's not even relevant in God's mighty plan of salvation which, thank God, hangs on Jesus and not on us. But the only way that spiritual failure can be overcome is by encountering the risen Jesus. That's what these failed disciples are told to do. Because their failure and their sin and your sin and your failure are not going to get the last word in God's gospel. Who will roll away the stone? We cannot do it. We are too weak, but Jesus has. Overwhelmed with fear, overwhelmed with grace, and we're overwhelmed with hope when we encounter the risen Christ. In this story, everyone has despaired. The disciples, obviously, but even the woman, they're coming. It's a mission of love but they are coming to deal with a corpse. They're coming to deal with a dead Jesus. There's no hope in their hearts. And they are happily mistaken because they encounter good news, unimaginably good news, that Jesus is not here. And as the angel underlines, this is all happening just as he told you. He will meet you in Galilee just as he told you. 
The resurrection was a dreadful shock to the woman. It was a dreadful shock to the disciples. But the resurrection was not a dreadful shock to Jesus. He was not surprised to find himself being raised from the dead. It was the plan all along, as he had again and again told the disciples, if only they had been listening. We talk about these three passion predictions in Mark, where Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to suffer and die. But each one of those passion predictions, those predictions of suffering, also includes a promise that Jesus is going to rise again. And the disciples had been so boggled at the idea of Jesus suffering, they never thought to even digest the idea that he would rise again. But he does because he said he would. Satan and sin and death are not going to get the victory in God's world. Jesus is, and that has been God's plan from the very, very beginning. This whole account happens on the first day of the week. God created the world in seven days. The first day is the beginning of creation. And here we have the beginning of a new creation. The old order of things shot through with death no longer applies. God is doing something new in the world. And that's why as Christians we worship on the first day of the week because we celebrate Easter every Sunday of the year. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what forms this church. Without Jesus risen from the dead, this church would have no reason for existence. We might as well completely disband it. The resurrection creates this new community. Here's what James S. Stewart writes. How could those upon whom this stupendous revelation had dawned remained apart? They could see its light in each other's eyes. They could read its message in each other's lives. They were sharers in the one incredible secret. Other men might inhabit a nightmare-haunted, demon-ridden world, but they knew the demons were defeated. Others, through fear of death, might be subject to bondage, but they had seen death lying dead. Belonging now forever to Christ, they belong inevitably to one another. Because they share this common hope, a solid, secure hope. Together, they and us have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a king who cannot be defeated. That is the message of Easter. And he's going ahead of you, he tells the disciples, and he tells us to Galilee, where the great commission is going to be given. And Jesus is going to announce all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I'm risen and clothed as King of kings and Lord of lords, go into all the world. But I am going ahead of you as I always go ahead of you. The resurrection launches us out into the world in mission. And we see Christ, our captain, plowing into the fray ahead of us, seated on his white horse. The name faithful and true is written on his thigh. And he is announcing... He is shouting, I am the resurrection and the life. All victory belongs to me. So anyone who encounters the risen Christ, and you may still encounter him today, anyone who encounters the risen Christ is a man or a woman with a mission. 
The resurrection, first of all, in our story is not a matter of personal comfort. It is a call to daring mission. And we're not promised safety. Our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka have suffered terribly today. But we are promised victory. We are promised victory. And nothing can stop Jesus, his mission, or his people. Let's pray. Almighty Son of God, whom death could not conquer, whom the tomb could not imprison, shine the light of your risen light upon us, your children. Let no shadow of the grave terrify us. May no fear of darkness turn our hearts away from you. Reveal yourself to us this day and all our days as the first and the last, as the living one, our immortal Savior and Lord. God of glory, fill your church with your power. The power that flows from Christ's resurrection. So that in the midst of a lost and dying world, we may share with joy the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.